bring him glory. And so let's sing um, and be reminded that he is the potter, he is the artist, he is the one shaping the wilderness.
got one more song, and it's a new song that we're going to teach you tonight. Um, it's called King. Um, and just as we declared that our life is not our own, but we lay it down for, um, for God, we're going to sing that we are laying down our life for our King. So um, uh, listen along as we sing it. Uh, and declare with us that uh, there's no other King worthy of our worship. There's no other King worthy of our love. And so sing that from our hearts tonight. So follow along and sing as catch on with us, okay? Uh, here's King.
Hey God, thank you so much for gathering us here today. Um, I see some newcomers. I'm so thankful that you brought them all here today. As um, Mr. Cha opens up his new sermon series, um, I just pray that you open up our hearts and just let go of the busyness, the chaos that we have outside of today and just, yeah, bring everything down and um, be open to receiving your word and your truth and what you have to say to us. And thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Alright, I guess go ahead and have a seat. I see some newcomers, so if you guys need a new journal, uh, Alyssa, if you can help pass those journals and pens out for our newcomers. Uh, well, welcome to Encounter. This is your first time. Our tagline is that uh, our hope is that we would see lives transformed as people have genuine encounters with God. Uh, and, you know, as we are coming down from the retreat, as we're coming down from SCW, I think that there's a lot of momentum, uh, there is a lot of energy, uh, and I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, how do I direct this newfound passion that I have? You're trying to figure out, what are the next steps in my faith? Do I go out to morning prayer? Where do I start reading the Bible? And these are all the correct and appropriate responses to the grace of God in your life. However, however, the real proof the real evidence that God is making a difference in our lives is not how much more religious we become. It is shown in our relationships. Uh, we'll be beginning a new sermon series at Encounter titled Redeeming Relationships. Shout out to Luna Lee for the new uh, design. Uh, and through this series, we'll be doing is we'll be examining how an encounter with God doesn't just stay with us, but it overflows into our relationship with others. The title of tonight's message is Redeeming Relationships, Loved to Love. Uh, tonight's sermon is almost kind of a part two of the Love of God sermon that we heard at the retreat. So if you weren't there and you didn't hear that one, uh, I would recommend that you go listen to that one as well. It is on our Spotify. Let's got to upload it. Um, but tonight's message is called Redeeming Relationships, Love to Love. And our passage comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 and 16 through 20. And this is how it reads. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me pray for us one more time before we look into God's word. Father God, thank you so much just for drawing us to this place, uh, for this special moment that we have, Lord. Uh, you have been so faithful over the past year and a half to meet with each and every one of us, uh, to speak to each and every one of us. God, we just ask that you would do that again this evening. Uh, through your word, uh, may your people know your voice. And as we hear your voice, may we see your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our big idea for tonight is that we can only love others to the degree that we have received the love of God. We can only love others to the degree that we have received the love of God. 
The first thing we're going to look at tonight is the call to love. When we look at the call to love, we see that love is the fulfillment of the law. In 1 John 4, 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Uh, one question I hear pretty often from students is, Mr. Cha, how do you know that Christianity is the correct religion? Or what makes Christianity different from all the other religions that exist? Now, there are a lot of reasons why I am convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which, you know, quick plug, if you want to hear more about this, we are starting our Investigating Christianity class tomorrow. Uh, lunch in my room, just bring your lunch, and we'll talk about uh, those kinds of topics. Uh, but for me, one of the most compelling aspects of Christianity is actually its value system, its high standard of ethics. Like, we can look at Buddhists and we can think, man, they are so peaceful, right? Like, nobody has beef with Buddhists. Everybody loves Buddhists. Uh, we can look at Muslims and think, man, they are so devoted. They fast for that whole month of Ramadan. And that's because the highest ethic in Buddhism is the removal of all desire. The highest ethic in Islam is allegiance to Allah. But what is the highest ethic of Christianity? It is love. Again, first John 4, God says, John says, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And the word ought in Greek is the word ophelio, which means a moral duty and obligation. And according to the Bible, for Christians, love isn't simply a feeling. It's not simply an option, uh, but it is our highest moral duty. All right? So the first thing we see is that love is the highest ethic for the Christian. Love is the highest ethic for the Christian. It is our core value, our purest virtue, and our deepest obligation. When people today think about Christian ethics, they immediately jump to the controversial wedge issues, things like abortion and homosexuality and immigration, and they imagine Christians as a bigoted, hateful group of people. But actual biblical Christianity is characterized by love above all else. And to say that love is the highest ethic for a Christian, this is not a mere sentimental, touchy-feeling statement. It is an all-encompassing summary of the law. When the religious leaders of his day questioned Jesus and asked him what his interpretation of the law was, this is what he says. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Jesus says that the whole law can be summed up in just these two commandments, to love God and to love people. That means the Ten Commandments, the whole book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these many rules can be summed up in this singular dual commandment to love God and to love people. And what Jesus is teaching us is that the law, all these rules that exist in the Bible, it was never about not sinning. It was always about loving. Because right? think about it. You don't steal from someone that you love. right? You don't murder someone that you love. And if there's someone you love, you don't covet their possessions. And for this reason, Jesus says that love is actually the fulfillment of all of the law. If all you ever focus on is not sinning and trying to keep the rules, it is exhausting. But if you just focus on loving people, then you will naturally fulfill all of the other commandments. God gave us the law to set boundaries for what love looks like, but the law, it is only the floor. It is not the ceiling of morality. It is the bare minimum, not the height. 
It's not about keeping rules. It's about loving others. And so what does it actually mean to love? It's not simply a matter of just having warm feelings towards someone. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he means is that in the same way that you look out for your own interests, look out for the interests of others. So in other words, this is our working definition of love. To love someone is to seek their good. To love someone is to seek their good. For me, what makes Christianity so compelling as a religion is because of its good and its beautiful ethical standard. So not only is love the highest virtue in Christianity, it is also the ultimate litmus test of a growing faith. Love is also the measure of maturity. In 1 John 4, 7, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. I want you guys to think about who is the most spiritually mature person that you know, like peer, not adult, spiritually mature peer that you know. Who has the most genuine faith that you can think of? And what is the ultimate mark of their spiritual maturity? Is it passion? Are the most spiritually mature people the ones who raise their hands during slow songs or jump up and down during fast songs? Is it purity? Is the people who hop off of social media, who don't drink, who don't smoke, who don't vape? Is it devotion, the people who wake up early and come out to morning prayer every single day? These can all be fruit of spiritual growth, but they are not the ultimate indicator of spiritual vibrancy. John says that love is the ultimate measure of whether or not someone is actually spiritually mature. Here is John's logic. John, when he says that, as he is, so also are we in this world, this is what he's saying, okay? Because remember, John's premise, John says that God is love. So that's his premise, right? And what is the observation? Is that we as human beings made in his image, we have the capacity to love. God is love, and we have the capacity to love. And so, conclusion, via transitive property, when we love, we actually reflect God's character. The essence of Christian formation the goal of sanctification is to become more and more like Jesus. And we are never more like Jesus than when we love others, because God is love. And it's not just John. Paul says something similar in the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Consistently throughout scripture, John, Paul, Jesus, they all say that love is the ultimate mark of spiritual maturity. So you're coming back from retreat and you're like, how do I know if I'm growing? How do I know if I'm actually following Jesus? Take a look at whether or not you are actually loving the people around you. After retreat, when we first start to fall in love with God, there are different things that we can do to make us feel like we're growing spiritually. Maybe you feel like, man, I went to morning prayer today, I did my quiet time, you start to feel good about your faith. But then there are other days when we start to feel like we're taking steps backwards, you guys know what I mean? I overslept today, I forgot to read the Bible, or if we sin, then we start to feel really discouraged and we question, man, did I really meet God? 
But again, the ultimate test of spiritual growth is not the absence of sin, it is the presence of love. It's not the absence of sin in your life. It's not, do you sin at all? It's, is there any love in your life? Because if we are in Christ, when we get to heaven, God will not count up how many times you've sinned and punish you accordingly, because if you're in Christ, what the Bible says is that your record of wrong, every single sin you've committed in your life was already nailed to the cross. Instead, what he will do is he will look at our lives and he will see how well we loved and he will reward us accordingly. The Bible consistently presents love as both the highest ethic and the ultimate measure of maturity. However, we know that it can be difficult to love. So the next thing we'll see is the failure to love. Even though we are called to love, if we are being honest, many of us actually have a propensity to hate. In 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Although we are called to love, many of us find it much easier to hate. And you might hear this verse, and you might think, well, this verse doesn't apply to me. I don't hate anybody. I don't have any ops. I don't even have the time to hate anybody. But this is a misunderstanding, because John's not just talking about active hating. He's talking about not loving. And what we translate in English as hate in the Greek is the word mise, which can mean hate or detest but can also mean to love less or esteem less. John is not speaking about the presence of active resentment. He's talking about the absence of love. And just from what I've observed throughout my life, here are at least four ways that we can fail to love. And I want you to think about which of these four do you fail to do the most often, or tend to do the most often. The first is resentment. Right, like some of you guys, you hear this verse and you already know it's talking about you. You are just a natural born hater. You are quick to criticize, quick to judge. Uh, the small things that people do around us bother us. Right? Like you're sitting there in class and your internal monologue is like, why does he have to cough so loudly? Why isn't he covering his mouth? And you're at like a 10 out of 10 mad when you see this. Uh, you uh, see someone like that, that kid in your class who asks the teacher a question every single day, and you're like, why does he have to ask a question every single class? Why can't they just sit there and be quiet like everybody else? You're scrolling through Instagram, and you see a post this girl makes, and you're like, man, why does she post with her makeup like that? She is such a pygmy, right? Like these, the smallest things that people do aggravate us, right? You know who you are. You guys are haters, right? This is you, right? Resentment, this is the way that you fail to love. So resentment is one way. Another way is exploitation. This is when you don't actually care about someone. It's when you only care about how they can benefit you. And people who do this are prone to use others. You don't actually love that person. You love what they have to offer you. You're nice to them because they give you answers for class. Or maybe you pretend to like them because you're in the same friend group as them if they're influential, so you have to be on their good side. You're projecting an illusion of love. You look like you're giving, but really you're trying to take from them. And even, right, we, we elevate romantic relationships as the peak of love, but even a romantic relationship, I want you to think about, do you actually love that person, or do you just love how they make you feel? Are you loving towards them because you care about them, or are you loving towards them in hopes that that will make them love you more? 
Because that is not a selfish, selfless love. That is a selfish lust. So the first is resentment. The second is exploitation. The third is competition. Failure to love can also look like competition. When we compete with others, it's different than when we exploit them. You're not thinking about what they can offer you. Instead, you are worried about what they might take away from you. You don't care about them as a person. You're worried about just protecting what you have. Right? And our monologue is this. If he makes varsity, then I might get cut. If she runs for this position, then I might not get elected. If they apply to this college, then I might not get in. You are literally praying for their downfall. And you don't see them as a person, you only see them as your competition. And in what way is that seeking their good? And the fourth way is indifference. This is the final and perhaps the most severe. A failure to love can look like indifference. You don't hate them, you don't exploit them, you're not competing with them, you just, you don't even realize that they exist. And this is perhaps the coldest of the failures to love. If you've ever been on the receiving end of this, then you know that this can actually be the most painful form of hate. It's when you're invisible, when people won't even acknowledge the fact that you exist. And that is how many of us look at the people around us with utter indifference. And so the failure to love can manifest in different ways, but why is it so hard to love? Because, I think some of you guys know where this is going, because we are driven by fear. And 1 John 14, 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. John says that whoever lives in fear has not been perfected in love yet. And what do we fear? I've shared this. This is my third time sharing it now. I think these are some of the most common fears at Gis. And as we read these, I want you to think about which one of these resonates with you. We fear inadequacy. We fear failure, we fear rejection, we fear abandonment, we fear being insignificant, we fear being worthless, and we fear being unloved. The reason why I'm emphasizing these so often is because I want us to realize how much of our behavior is driven by these often unnamed fears. John says that fear is proof that we don't know God's love yet. Some of you guys, you're like, Mr. Shah, I already know that God loves me, right? Because you listen to one sermon about the love of God at the retreat, maybe because you're in my class right now, you're reading Life of the Beloved, you're like, Mr. Shah, I know that God loves me. But no, if any of these fears are still present in your life, if you read these words and something is resonating with you and it's striking a chord, then that is proof that you have not yet been perfected in love. Does that make sense? So why do we fail to love others? Why do we exploit them? Why do we compete with them? Because we are so consumed with trying to get love for ourselves that we lack the capacity to think of others. This is what Henry Nouwen says in an article called Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. He says, if we want other people to give us something that only God can give, we become a demon. We say, love me. And before you know it, we become violent and demanding and manipulative. Before you say, it's not that big of a deal, Mr. Chad, just everyone lives that way. You can't expect people to be loving. It's okay if I'm not loving. Everyone has to look out for themselves. 
No, the consequences of our combined failure to love is felt throughout society. When everyone in the world is walking around living, demanding, love me, when everyone is busy trying to secure and demonstrate their own worth, what we end up creating is a toxic and cutthroat culture. Think about why are suicide levels in Korea so high? Why is jumping into the hangang a casual expression? Like people talk about how safe Korea is, that it's not like the US, and sure, they might not be the active violence that exists, but there is a cold indifference in Korea. The other day, a colleague was mine was expressing how frustrated they were because their pregnant wife was struggling to get her stroller onto the bus and everyone around her was just watching her. No one bothered to offer to help. That is our culture. When John Michael came to speak about the Oak Tree Project, he talked about how despite the high number of Christians that exist in Korea, adoption rates in Korea are abysmally low. That's us. We all contribute to that. We all fail to love, and that failure to love creates a world that is devoid and empty of love. And at the end of the day, is not everything that is wrong in the world at its root a failure to love? Think about racism, misogyny, inequality, injustice. Are not all of these simply the sum total of our failure to love? We fail to love because we are driven by fear. So then how do we actually become loving people? We have to turn to the source of love. We turn to the source of love. <coughs> we must return to our first love. First John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. John says that the only reason why you or I have the capacity to love is because God first loved us. In other words, we can only love to the degree that we know God's love for us. And the reverse is also true, that how much we love others reveals how much or how little we know God's love. How much we love others reveals how much or how little we know God's love. you want to understand whether or not someone actually knows the love of God, take a look at how they treat people, and that will tell you very clearly. Uh, I want to introduce you guys to a concept that you hear in some Christian circles that I think is helpful to think about. Uh, it is the idea of vertical and horizontal relationships. Okay, so your vertical relationship, that's up and down, your vertical relationship, that is your relationship with God. Your horizontal relationships, those are relationships that you have with everyone else. If your vertical relationship with God is unhealthy, then all of your horizontal relationships will also be dysfunctional. And if you are not regularly receiving the love of God, then you will be incapable of loving your parents, your friends, your peers. And I said this at the retreat, is that you can live your life basically in one of two ways. You can live your life using others to make yourself feel more lovable, or you can allow God to use your life to make others feel loved. You can live demanding to be loved by others, or you can live declaring God's love to other people. But the only people who are set free and have the capacity to do, to do that 
are those who first know God's love. Therefore, the call to love others is a call to first receive the love of God. The call to love others is really a call to first receive the love of God. I think this is the beauty of the Christian ethic. Some of you guys, you're not going to get this yet, but if you're, if you're tracking, just track along with me, okay? So here's our premise again, right? What did Jesus say? He said that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others, right? That's the whole law. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. What does John say? That we can only love if we first know God's love. So then what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to receive the love of God. God not only gives us the commandment, he also then gives us the resources to actually do it. The surface level command, right, what you see is the command to love, but the command behind the command is the command to be loved. God is not simply calling you to sacrificially love other people. God is calling you to know how much you are already loved. So again, instead of trying to focus on keeping all of the rules in the Bible, if you are simply daily receiving the love of God, then you will naturally love others and therefore fulfill the law. And again, one of the reasons why I find Christianity to be so compelling as a religion is because of the beauty of its value system. Because imagine if this were true of all Christians. Because I don't want to live in a world where people have simply gotten rid of their desires like in Buddhism. I don't want to live in a world where people are trying to earn their way into paradise like in Islam. But imagine a world where there is a sea of believers who know that they are already saved, covered by the blood of Jesus, who are convinced that they are the beloved of God, and as a result, they are overflowing with love for one another. They are always seeking one another's good. Imagine that world. What kind of world would that be? That would be heaven on earth. The call to love others is really a call to receive God's love first. And so what does that look like in practice? We have to be in continual love. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. John makes a distinction here. He says we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. He's saying that there's a difference between simply knowing something and actually believing it. Some of you guys, again, you're getting tired of hearing about God's love. You think you understand it already. Yeah, 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 I'm just trying. I know that God loves you. But again, how much you actually believe that God loves you is made evident by how much you live motivated either by fear or an actual love for other people. So how do we continually receive God's love? First thing is we have to meet God individually. Psalm 90.14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We must be daily satisfied with God's love. You position yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you read the Bible, as you pray, and as you worship. You don't do these things to make God love you more, but you do these things to make yourself realize how much God already loves you. And as you do this, you are creating space for the Holy Spirit to be able to pour God's love into your heart. And so people ask me, how long should I pray? How long should I read the Bible? You know how long? You read the Bible until you are happy. 
Read the Bible until you are happy. Until your soul rejoices again. Because what does the psalmist say? He says, satisfy us with your steadfast love. Until you have been satisfied with the love of God. Until you are reminded and your soul rejoices in the truth that the God of the Bible calls you his beloved. That is how long you read the Bible for. Because if you are not daily rejoicing in the reality of God's love for you, then you will once again begin to operate out of fear and start wandering to someone or to something else to give you the validation that you were looking for. And as an aside, uh, I want to emphasize uh, the importance of uh, seeking God in the morning. Okay? I promise this is not a plug for morning prayer. Um, you can do this at home if you want, if you can wake up on time. Uh, morning prayer is a great place to do this as well. Is that there is something different about having your quiet time with God in the morning instead of at night. Like, I usually try not to be too realistic and prescribe specific ways to do things. Um, but actually, uh, if you're a Korean, uh, morning prayers, Hedokido, is a part of our spiritual legacy. Uh, if you go to other churches, uh, other ethnic denominations, uh, what they'll say, right, they'll say that uh, white Christians, uh, they know how to do theology really well. Uh, black Christians, uh, they know how to worship. But Korean Christians, they know how to pray. That is our spiritual legacy. And I was talking to one of the moms about the fact that we are starting morning prayer here at Yus. And she said she was so happy because uh, our grandparents and our parents' generation, going out to morning prayer for them was a regular thing. Uh, but our generation is starting to lose that discipline. And I think that that is a tragedy. Because over and over again in scripture, we see the saints of old emphasize the importance of seeking God first thing in the morning. Psalm 143, 8 says, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Lamentations 3, 22, 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And the gospels themselves talk about Jesus himself, right? Like, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. It says that Jesus himself would rise early in the morning to go and pray. So what is it about morning prayer? What is it about spending time with God in the morning that is so different than spending time with him at night? It's because if you prioritize spending time with God first thing in the morning, then you wake up, you receive his love for you, and you walk through the rest of your day confident and secure, right? You kind of have this like swag to your step because you know that in Christ, you are already fully loved, right? That was the expression we tried to teach you guys at retreat is you are fully loved. Turn to the person next to you. Make eye contact with them. Turn to the person next to you. Make eye contact with them. Say, you are fully loved. Other side. Make eye contact with them. Say, you are fully loved. When you receive the love of God first thing in the morning, then you can walk through this day knowing that there is nothing that can happen to you that day that is going to make you any less loved because you are already fully loved by God. Conversely, if you make spending time with God the last thing you do in the day, then you wake up, you hurry up, you anxiously go through your day, trying to fulfill all your responsibilities. You again, you start to operate out of fear, worrying that if you can't do this well, if you fail at this, then you'll be loved less. And then finally, at night, when you go to God in the evening, you've already lived another day apart from Him. And you feel guilty going to him because you wandered already to so many other things before you finally turn to him. And eventually, because you feel guilty, you'll just stop going to him at all. So my recommendation to you is that you seek God first thing in the day. Receive his love so that you will not wander to anything else.
And until you have been satisfied with God's love, do not lightly enter into community, or else you will start demanding from people what you were meant to find in God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, says this, Whoever cannot be alone should be aware of community. Such people will only do harm to themselves and to the community. Whoever cannot be alone should be aware of community. When I come to work in the morning, I jealously guard the quiet time that I have with God. Because I know that if I am not spending time receiving God's love for me first, like I become a monster. Like you guys think I'm harsh now? Like imagine what I would be like if I spent a day, a week, a month apart from God. I dread to think the kind of man that I would be. And when I was doing college ministry, I had a team of college students that I was leading. My rule for them was that if we had an event like this, like an encounter, large group type service, I would tell them, if you haven't met with God on your own yet, don't come to the event. Do your quiet time first and then come in. Because I need you to meet with God first and receive his love because I don't want you bringing all that baggage into our community. So we seek God individually, uh, but we do not stay there. We also have to meet God in community. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. God has given us his body as one of the means through which we receive his love. You know, at the retreat, uh, someone was sharing with me how uh, while they were praying on their own, uh, they just couldn't feel God's presence. Uh, but then when they prayed with other people, as their friends were praying for them, uh, they could feel God's love through their prayers. Right? Like on their own, they could not feel it. But then as someone was praying for them through their prayer, they could literally feel the Holy Spirit moving, shifting things around in their hearts. You will not be able to abide in God's love on your own. You need community to remind you of it. That's why we have small groups. Uh, that's why we have encounter. Uh, but also, please, uh, I am pleading with you, please get plugged into a local church. Uh, encounter is unique in that it's a youth ministry at a school. If you think about it, it, like it's so easy for you guys to come here, right? You just have to come after school, after practice. Um, your friends are here. The sermons and the songs are all tailored to fit your life context. But this will not always exist for you once you leave this place. When you go to college, you will need to find a community of believers on your own. And if you are not in the habit of going to church now, I don't know why you think that you will start when you go to college. Uh, the reason uh, why Encounter started was because we knew that statistically, I think it's 90% of Korean Americans stop going to church in college. The goal of Encounter is not to make Encounter big. But our prayer is simply that you will continue to walk with the Lord long after you leave this place. That is the goal. That you will live each day of your life receiving the love of God so that you can share that love with others. And that is because, big idea, we can only love to the degree that we have first received the love of God.
uh, you know, as we uh, go through this new series on redeeming relationships, uh, we'll be looking at how God redeems our relationships with various uh, horizontal categories, how he redeems our relationships with our parents, uh, our friends, uh, other people, etc. Um, and earlier I said that it feels like uh, we are standing on the brink of a revival, uh, and I really mean that. Uh, like, I, I don't know if you guys feel the weight of how unusual uh, what's happening at YIS is. Uh, like, last Friday's SEW, uh, did you ever imagine SEW looking like that in all your years at YIS? No, right? That's because God is doing something special in this place. But the revival that takes place, it will not hinge upon the strength of our praise team or the strength of my preaching. The revival will take place based on the authenticity of our love for one another. Jesus says that you will know, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. And my prayer is that our community, this ministry, will be marked by love for one another. Marked by love for the lost. Marked by love for the world. Marked by love for those whom Jesus shed his blood. Before we close the song, I'm just going to take some time to pray. I believe that God wants to redeem the relationships in your life. He sees some of the bitterness. He sees uh, the brokenness. He sees the resentment, the indifference. He wants to bring healing to those areas. Which of the four it wasn't resonating with you, but uh, I know for myself, uh, I fail to love so often. Uh, can we just take some time to repent this evening? Uh, repent of our lack of love. Maybe it's resentment towards family. Maybe it's competition with peers. Maybe it's indifference uh, for the rest of this world. But all of us collectively, we contribute to this world devoid of love, empty of God's love. And God wants to begin to use us to fill his world again. He fills us with this, he fills us with his love, and he fills his world with his love through us. So let's take some time to repent of the ways that we have failed to love, repent of the ways that instead of loving others, we have been driven by fear, repent of the ways that instead of declaring God's love, we demand it from others. Instead of being used by God to love, we use others to make ourselves feel more lovable. Let's go to the Lord and repent of these things. Father God, we're ready to turn to you. I'm so sorry. Yourselves, let's continue to repent 
and acknowledge, God, I have failed to love this person. I have failed to love that person. I have not been your representative to this world. Father God, we are so sorry, Father God, for the ways that we Crazy thing.